Recovery Elevator, episode 375. And I'm of the mindset that like, we have no bad parts. There are no bad parts, only parts that are probably trying to protect us, usually from like emotional or psychological pain or parts that have been wounded. And I think in the recovery community, we hear a lot about like name that part in your head. And I think that is such an effective strategy because it's just a part of us. It's not all of us. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us today. On today's episode, we have Amanda. She's 40 years old from Florida and took her last drink on March 25th, 2019. Great job, Amanda. Yo, Cafe RE members, we've got an amazing Cafe RE independent meetup in Atlanta over Memorial Day weekend. If the Bruno voices saying, why don't they do a meetup near me? I don't live in the Atlanta area. Nonsense. Last year, we had people from 18 different states show up. We've got a hike planned, a pool party, welcome dinner, and authentic conversation. Go to the Cafe I Remember site for more info. Hey, and I'm calling all guys who don't drink. We've still got camping spots and men's cabin spots available for our flagship annual retreat in Bozeman, Montana, this August 10th to the 14th. If the weather gods have our backs this year, and we earned it last year, then you'll have the chance to put your feet in the most pristine waters on the planet in the surrounding mountains. And if we're lucky, we might even see some buffalo. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. And before we get any further, let's hear from Exact Nature. Exact Nature was founded by a father and son in addiction recovery. Exact Nature's all-natural CBD products are specially formulated to help you face the exceptional challenges of recovery, and we are so grateful to have them as our sponsor. Beat your cravings with their Serenity Blend. If you are interested in learning more, head on over to exactnature.com and use the promo code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order. That is RE20 at exactnature.com. Okay, let's get started. There are two things I want to talk to you about today. Number one, the world's most desirable human emotion, anxiety. I'm kidding, that was a funny. And then number two, decoupling. Okay, anxiety. This was my tipping point, or what finally pushed me into quitting drinking. When drinking, the anxiety, or anxiety was absolutely unbearable. In 2007, I remember getting into a taxi cab telling the driver I was having a heart attack, which I genuinely thought I was. I recall when the driver stopped at a red light, I said, yo, I'm having a heart attack. It ended up being my first panic attack, and apparently the physical sensations are quite similar. So I used alcohol to numb this anxiety, but then when I sobered up, the new baseline consisted of a higher level of anxiety. So I could see where this was going, and it was going there fast, so I took a leap of faith and quit drinking. Anxiety got a little worse for a bit, a couple weeks. Then, thank goodness, it improved dramatically. And today, listeners, I'd say about 85 to 90% of my anxiety went away, permanently, for good. But I still have some anxiety. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, because some anxiety is helpful. I read a study one time where scientists were able to remove the fear response or anxiety from monkeys 
and all of the monkeys in this experiment were dead in less than two months. You need some anxiety or fear to bring you back into the pack or to let you know that something may be out of balance. Or the anxiety might show up for no damn reason at all. Sometimes the anxiety, it doesn't have to mean shit. Now, I'm including this snippet about anxiety because I have anxiety today, but it no longer controls me like it used to. In fact, I'm recording an intro. I'm not sweating bullets or breathing into a paper bag. Hells to the yes. I exchanged alcohol for the breath, which is so potent. So if you're experiencing anxiety today, as you listen, you're not alone. And the best action, in my opinion, is to get through it one deep breath at a time. Okay, now let's talk about decoupling. If I had to pick one word to describe what an AF journey looks like, I'd have to say decoupling, well, and at least for today. What I mean by that is untangling the thoughts, actions, and behaviors that are no longer serving you. They work for a while. After all, you're still alive, but they need to go. Now, let me give you an example of what this could look like. A couple months back, I was doing laps around the rug in my living room late at night, saying out loud to myself, I am so effing tired. And I kept saying it out loud to myself. Uh, so here I am, tired, after a long day, long week. Who, who really knows? I don't remember anymore. But as I said this, I was walking, and it hit me in that moment <laughs> of how ludicrous it was. I was pacing, doing laps around my living room rug, telling myself how effing tired I was, and it hit me. I said, hey, Paul, maybe you want to take a seat, kick your feet up, maybe make yourself a tea? Sure, it was somewhat humorous, I know, but that was, for me, what uncoupling looks like. Uh, I used to move nonstop. I was always on the go. Still working on this, and I know this tracks with a lot of people. So thanks to neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to change or modify itself, you can rewire your brain. You can decouple these unhealthy narratives, thoughts, or actions that are no longer serving you. This is wonderful news. And here's another example of decoupling. Maybe right after work, for the past 20 years, you poured yourself a drink. To decouple that could look like this. Now, after work, you go to a climbing gym or to an AA meeting. Sure, it's a kick in the goat blocks at first, but eventually it becomes the new norm. I mentioned this in last week's episode, but one thing you heard in pandemic life was, when are we going back to normal? Well, as author Eckhart Tolle says, what we currently have labeled as a normal way of life is actually quite insane. We have never been more addicted to external substances or unhealthy actions as a species. These are all adaptive behaviors to help us live or survive in this normal way of life. You can't see this, but normal had air quotes around it. If you're wanting to quit drinking, no, you don't want to go back to that normal way of life. You need, and it's up to you, to create a new normal life where alcohol isn't a necessity to survive. This is done through decoupling. We were all born with self-love, with laughter around every corner. Joy is the baseline state. And that's what we are going back to. We continue the decoupling process until we arrive at that state of gratitude or state of joy. We don't do this by adding more, but by decoupling, by removing, restoring, restarting, recovering, re, re, re. There's a reason why the abbreviation for recovery elevator is RE, re. We are restoring. We are removing. So decoupling is a muscle. Start small. Put on your deodorant with your left hand instead of your right. When you go to a hotel, 
sleep on the other side of the bed. If you're a male, do your best to wait till you're done peeing before flushing the toilet. And gosh darn it, I know how hard that is. Studies show that shaking up how we do these smaller tasks pre-paves the brain to decouple larger emotional and behavior algorithms. Neuroscientist Dr. Joe Dispenza does a lot of work in this space. A good book I'd recommend by him is You Are the Placebo. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. Before we hear from Amanda, there's one more thing I want to mention. The most dangerous place to be isn't swimming in shark-infested waters or face-to-face with a moose, which, by the way, kills more people each year than bears. The most dangerous place you can be is alone. Reach out to someone. They want to help. Now, before we hear from Odette and Amanda, let's hear from BetterHelp. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the best online therapy option that currently exists on the market. Mental health matters. And as we continue to live through these stressful times, it has become more and more evident that we need to have someone that can help us process our emotions and navigate the challenges of sobriety. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp provides a broad range of expertise, which may not be locally available in many areas. The platform is super easy to navigate as you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with your counselor. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. You all know that I'm a big proponent of therapy, so I highly recommend you check it out. Simply visit betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join everyone that is taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Recovery Elevator listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash elevator. Thank you, Paul, for a great introduction and Recovery Elevator. Please help me welcome Amanda to the show today. Amanda, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. I am starting my morning with this interview. I was telling Amanda that I woke up not very long ago. It is Friday and it is six in the morning here on the West Coast, but I know that it's a little bit later uh, for you, Amanda. Where are you calling in from? I am in Florida. And so it's 9 a.m. my time. You already had a cup of coffee, maybe? (laughs) Uh, A few. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Amanda. And when was the last time you had a drink? That would be March 25th, 2019. And how are you feeling? I'm feeling great. I'm feeling great. It's, um, it's actually three years ago to the day because today that we're recording, this is March 25th. And so it's, it's kind of surreal actually. That's so neat that today is your anniversary. Are you doing anything to celebrate or how do you like, you know, seeing these milestone days? Is there anything that you've come to make of a ritual on the special day? Not necessarily. I think I, um, I'm in Cafe RE and it's a huge resource to me. And so just getting uh, those accolades there and, you know, sharing with that community. And I'm actually uh, celebrating my daughter's birthday, which was on Monday and her birthday party is tomorrow. And so it's just kind of like a nice 
experience to be sober for another one of her birthdays. I love that. Thank you for sharing and congratulations. Three years is a long time. Yeah. Three years is a long time since the last time you had an alcoholic beverage. So I hope you feel very proud of yourself today. And before we get into your story, can you just let us know, I know you're calling in from Florida, but can you let us know a little bit about yourself? How old you are? Do you have a family? What do you do for a living? What do you do for fun? Just a little bit about you, Amanda. Yeah. Yeah. I am 40 years old. I just turned 40 this year and, um, I am married to a very wonderful, very patient man who is in the military. So we've moved around a few times and we just moved to Florida in July, 2021. And I work as a mental health provider. I have two kids, my daughter, just turned nine this week. And then my son is six. And for fun, I love to spend time with my kids. I like to bake. I love working out. I like fitness kind of stuff. And um, as a family, we just like to do, you know, all kinds of little things like ice skating or, you know, going on trips, going to Disney, And I love spending time, whether it's virtually or in person with other sober people and sober friends. You know, the only downside of all of this and Recovery Elevator and Cafe and the podcast is that I've interviewed so many people where I'm like, man, why are we so far away? I have two kids. (laughs) I like doing the same things. You're all the way over in Florida, Amanda. (laughs) Right. Right. I know that is I would agree. It's like, um you know, it's a downside and an upside because we get to connect with so many different people around the country that uh, we would absolutely never have any connection with otherwise had we not gone on this recovery journey. But then it's like, you're so far away and I can't necessarily just pop over and have a cup of coffee with you. Yeah, hundred percent. It definitely makes for just having this directory of friends and people all around the country and even in some other parts of the world. But sometimes I do go on these, you know, fantasies of after our retreat, maybe what would happen if, if, if this was our local community, you know, and it's really pushed me into thinking that I have to try and and get out of my comfort zone and maybe meet more people here in San Diego that I can actually do that with, like grab a cup of coffee. So anyway, I'm going off on a tangent, but thank you so much for sharing Amanda. And, you know, tell us about your relationship with alcohol. Let us know when that started When did it start becoming a problem for you? How was the progression and what got you to quit and be here with us? Yeah, yeah. So I would say that like many people in recovery, maybe not all people, but many people, my initiation into substance use and drinking started back in high school. I was actually a pretty straight-laced kid in high school. I um, wasn't necessarily a happy kid. I was very anxious and angsty. But I was an athlete and I stayed out of trouble, but I was also growing up in an alcoholic home. And even though my dad got sober when I was 15 and stayed sober, there was still a lot of unhealthy family patterns that persisted and a history of a lot of verbal and emotional abuse. And I'd say that in conjunction with being a pretty anxious person kind of led me to feeling sort of fed up. And so I quit playing sports my senior year and I started going out with an older crowd and drinking. 
a lot. And that quickly escalated into some recreational illicit drug use. And I just felt, you know, like many people have said before, I felt like I belonged for the first time. And it, you know, it worked. It worked in the short run. I felt like it filled that void inside of me. It calmed my nervous system and it was effective. But I, you know, I'm grateful that being an anxious person was kind of a protective factor because I quickly kind of reined in that drug use. I realized this is pretty dangerous, but I kept drinking and then I transitioned into college and it didn't help that I went to college in New Orleans. And so my drinking only escalated at that point. And then when I was a sophomore in college in 2001, I discovered prescription medications And I, um, this was a time when people were selling their medications and I realized, oh, I can get high this way as well. So I started to abuse prescription medications, you know, because it kind of reminded me of how it felt when I did those illicit illegal drugs. And that didn't help with drinking because it allowed me to drink more or stay up longer and I would mix it with alcohol. And unfortunately, it started kind of an on and off addiction to prescription medication that lasted years. But also when I would, you know, kind of rein that in, then my drinking would just ramp up because I would turn to alcohol since I couldn't, you know, necessarily get access to prescription medication. And then I'd say, you know, I I wasn't quite addicted to alcohol yet. But the path was being laid for sure. And I certainly used it to cope and used it to be more comfortable in social situations. And I got through college and grad school and was working a really good job in 2012 when I got pregnant with my daughter. And I had her in 2013. And I was just really stressed being a first time mom. I was first-time mom working full-time as a mental health provider and kind of an emotionally taxing job. And my husband being military was just gone all the time. And so I didn't have a lot of family around because that's sort of the way of the life of being a military wife. And I turned to alcohol at that point to cope. And again, it worked. It worked really well and things escalated very quickly. And I got pregnant again in 2015 with my son and I didn't drink during that pregnancy, but unbeknownst to me at the time, I was at that point already addicted to alcohol. And I know this because the mental obsession during that pregnancy was brutal. I was always kind of thinking, oh, I wish I could have a drink and can't wait till I have this baby and I can drink again. And I just thought that was normal. But then I had my son and I was nursing him. So the first chance I got to give him a bottle, I was so excited to have a drink. And I was shocked that it didn't really scratch the itch at all. And then about a month after having him, I had a birthday. And so I had some friends over and we were celebrating. And I was really shocked that I was able to just drink a whole bottle of wine and still want more. I was like, wait a minute, my tolerance is supposed to be reset, but this isn't fair. And, you know, looking back, knowing what I know now, I was just picking back up where I left off. And at that point, that was 2016, from 2016 to 2018, my drinking really ramped up. And 
now I'm working full time as a mental health provider. This is an emotionally taxing job. My husband's gone all the time and I have two kids, <laughs> two small children. So alcohol was my coping strategy and I'm still dealing with, you know, some tough stuff from my childhood, like we all do. And the interesting thing is, you know, from the outside, no one would have known any better. I'm holding down a pretty advanced professional job. I'm working full time. I look, you know, very put together. I was eating, writing, exercising and taking care of my kids. And I wasn't drinking every day. I, you know, I never drank at work or even went to work hungover, but I was going on these major benders Friday through Saturday or, you know, anytime I didn't have to work. And I think like it's been said so many times, even on this podcast, those factors that I listed were just used for me to justify my drinking and even prolong it, unfortunately, because, you know, from the outside, I looked fine. And a lot of people would have been surprised to know what was going on in my personal life. 100%. You know, that is, I think, the toughest part, because it's harder to reconcile what's really going on when you're able to sustain this otherwise perception. So I, I do have one quick question that I want to get back to in terms of your early chapter in discovering, you know, when you said you discovered prescription medications and you were drinking at that point when you were in college, like, where was your awareness at? Were you noticing like, oh man, like I can get high, getting high is fun. Or were you able to kind of zoom out, see yourself from maybe from outside of yourself and, and recognize like, oh man, like I'm doing something that is just maybe not going to take me, take me somewhere where I want to go. How was your awareness around that back then? Yeah. So the interesting thing is because I had done some much more hardcore drugs in high school, mm. in college, I really kind of felt like, oh, well then nothing is as bad as that, you know? Yes. So if I'm drinking, that's not so bad. Or these pills that doctors would prescribe, that's not so bad. And so I think I justified it like, well, I'll never go back to that extreme point. And so this is much more low level. But in later years, beyond college, when I had moments where I was kind of falling back into that cycle, because it was not consistent. But when I did, I did experience exactly what you described, where I would kind of step back and look at myself and go, oh, gosh, this is not safe this is not okay. And then I could rein it in for a little while. But then, like I said, it could ultimately escalate the drinking because then, okay, well, I'm going to turn to what is legal and what is available, right. which is alcohol. Yeah. You back know. to what you were saying, you know, not only does our brain make it work for ourselves in terms of, you know, how we present ourselves to the world and whether we look like someone who has a problem or not, but also the type of substance that we gravitate towards. I can't remember who it was with on the show that we talked about. You know, you think about, I don't know, little airplane bottles on the floor when you're going for a walk and you're like, man, someone really drunk was drinking last night. Someone who's a total drunk. And you think of, I don't know, those mixed drinks that we used to drink in college. And there's almost like this hierarchy of, of alcohol within alcohol of like, okay, if I'm drinking this super expensive bottle of wine, you know, it's, 
just interesting to me how that plays a role in also how we perceive our, ourselves is what we are drinking and how we have this stigma or non-stigma towards the specific substance that we choose. A hundred percent. And I think I would also mention the arrogance on my end of, I have a lot of knowledge about mental health and I know what I'm doing and almost like I'm above, you know, being the victim of addiction, yeah. which just, you know, sick thinking that we fall into when we're under the influence for when we're trying to justify our behavior. And I would say, you know, not only like I, you call it arrogance. I, I think that part is the hardest part in terms of the internal battle, because even though you're like, oh, you know, I know better. I'm a mental health professional. That's not me. I got, I got a good handle on this. I think it's also an indicator of, I don't know, of, of it could happen to anyone. And this sucks because I'm supposed to be walking the walk and I'm kind of not like, I feel like for me, exactly what you shared, I've felt that and it's happened and it's come up more of like an imposter syndrome ish. Did that ever happen to you? Totally, totally. And I think it just speaks to that. No one is immune to yes. addiction. And I just love how I've heard, I'm sure, you know, this has been said by many people, but Paul Churchill saying nature loads the gun and nurture pulls the trigger. And I completely believe that. I mean, I've got a good, strong family lineage of substance mm -hmm. abuse history. My dad's a recovering alcoholic and you know, nurture pulls the trigger and no one is immune, no matter how advanced you are. And I think, you know, the imposter syndrome really made things painful. And then again, you're in emotional or psychological pain and we have a solution for that. It's substance use. And so the cycle continues, unfortunately. Yeah, I hear you. What happened after 2018, Amanda? You said that was kind of the 2016 to 2018 was kind of the block where things started to progress quickly. What yeah. happened leading to three years ago today? Yeah. So in 2018, my family relocated because of my husband's position in the military. And we went from one side of the country to another. And I, it was, it was a really positive thing for me because I was kind of forced to work less. I had to sort of rebuild myself. I started sort of a remote clinic for my organization and rebuilt my caseload. And that took time and it was great. I really enjoyed having the break. I was looking forward to it, but it also made me sort of reevaluate things. And I thought, you know, I really need to rein in my drinking. I was not at all of the mindset that I was a problem drinker or I was addicted or an alcoholic, you know, whatever term you want to use, I'm not opposed to any of them, but I knew that it wasn't okay. And I felt bad. I felt guilt. I wanted to be more present. So I started this fitness program that was like a three-month program. And I was committed to sticking to the nutritional plan, which of course did not allow alcohol. And I really did stick to it. I was very committed. I made a lot of fitness gains and I felt amazing and I'm working less. And so I'm also not necessarily turning to alcohol to cope. And so I had this stint of sobriety where maybe I had like one or two drinks here and there. I mean, it was, it was very, very, very little, 
And it was cool because I got this glimpse of the freedom that we get in sobriety. And I got to experience what it's like to have like good, wholesome, fulfilling fun with your family and be present. And life is good this way. But again, I wasn't of the mindset that I had a true problem. So I was never committed to just quitting. So in the summer of 2018, my husband had to do a training that took him away almost the entire summer. He was able to sometimes come home on the weekends. And so I'm done with this fitness program. So again, I turned to alcohol to cope with that. And it works like it does. And things really sort of escalated from there. I was, you know, drinking more and more, but still, you know, I, I built up my caseload. I started going back full-time to work. I was doing great. I was very successful at work. I've always have been, I've been in leadership roles. And so more justification for why I don't have a problem. But by March, 2019, I was really not doing well in terms of drinking. It was, it was pretty bad. And at that time, my husband's grandfather passed away. And so we traveled back to his hometown to attend the funeral. And when we arrived at the airport, my husband would say, you know, it was 9 a.m. And he watched me drink what was probably equivalent to an entire bottle of wine. And, you know, I'm like on vacation, I'm on a bender. So I'm like, whatever. And he was pretty scared at that point. And so we travel back for the funeral. We're there a few days and I was just on a complete bender. And in a lot of, day, in a lot of ways, I probably blended in because there was a lot of family that was you know, congregating and um, spending time together and alcohol was part of that. But by the end of that trip, I was really pretty obnoxious, I assume, and being kind of annoying. And without going into a lot of details, I was just getting on my father-in-law's nerves <laughs> and he snapped at me, which was shocking because he's just the most wonderful, calm man. And I love him dearly. And so having him snap at me was just like, what just happened? And I felt terrible. And that was enough to be really concerning and eye-opening. So we traveled back home and I was just feeling awful. And I was like, that's it. I'm just, I'm really going to, I'm really going to do something about this. Honestly, still not of the mindset that I was addicted. Just that, you know, this is a problem and I'm going to figure it out. So I was ready to quit. I was ready to quit for a little while. And it wasn't long after we got home that I started to feel some pretty intense withdrawal because I had just gone on a bender and I had one drink on March 25th, 2019 to try to sort of take the edge off of the withdrawals. It didn't do very much. And then I went to bed and, you know, like we do sometimes as parents, we, I, I was sleeping with my daughter that night. I let her crawl into bed with me. And she's so sweet and she had just turned six and I'm cuddling with her and she fell asleep. And I just had this moment of clarity where I thought, what if I fall asleep with this sweet little girl and she wakes up and I don't I'm like, what if that happens someday? And I just, it stopped me dead in my traps. And I thank God every day that I had that thought because I couldn't sleep anyways because I was having such bad withdrawals and panic attacks. And I got up and I got out of bed and I found my husband and he was just up watching TV. And I said, I'm ready to be done. I have a problem. 
And he wasn't surprised. He was relieved that, and you know, of course you do, of course you have a problem with alcohol, but I also came clean about all the times in my life where I had been abusing pills and prescription medication and he wasn't extremely shocked, but it really did shake him. And that was three years ago to the day. And I stopped and I never looked back and, you know, he was so supportive and so loving and so patient. And we started the path of helping me find what I needed to be in recovery. Oh, Amanda, you know, thank you so much for sharing that moment. You know, that I have kids too, and my daughter's seven right now. So I, you know, I'm really able to make a picture in my mind of kind of what that moment looked like, because I have had similar moments where the kids snuggle in bed as well. So I'm just so grateful that such an ordinary moment became a big moment because basically that's what gets affected by our drinking. You know, all of these little things become the big things and can become, you know, something really heartbreaking or a tragedy or a crash or, you know, I don't know, a rupture of a relationship, so many things. And the fact that through a loving action, you were able to kind of see that playing out as a negative outcome and kind of have that moment. I don't know. I think that's very special. So I appreciate you sharing. I I could feel how emotionally you were getting. And I, I think you'll always have that moment to look back on as not only a reminder, but also as your why, because I mean, I'm sure family's a big part of your why and of your motivation. I mean, you did the motivation route of, you know, the willpower, the like, let me just do this fitness program and let me just clean up my diet and my lifestyle. And, you know, we've discussed about that on the show too, about how you kind of, if you see it as just kind of like all these things that you need to check off and all these behaviors that you need to change, that willpower does tend to run out and what happens when that does, right? So I think having these moments like this and really this shift in ourselves truly is sometimes what it takes to make this a true commitment versus just like, oh, I'm going to change a lifestyle. You know, it's just, it's all part of the journey, but I'm just really happy that you had that moment. Yeah, I know. And it was a very, very painful moment, but certainly a beautiful moment at the same time. And it's, it's funny because I wasn't, I still was, you know, kind of substances change us. They make us who we're not. I mean, they bring up a different person in us. And so even after that moment, there was a part of me that was like, oh, well, you know, I just need to make some changes. I, but I didn't really see it as like, I need to quit drinking forever. And it, it was interesting. Cause I, I ended up going to an AA meeting the following week once I felt well enough. And I just was so fraught with guilt that I cried the whole time. And I came home and I had a phone call with my mentor who's like, not at all in, you know, recovery, but is a very, very skilled therapist. And I said, you know, I just don't know what to do. I just, (laughs) do I quit forever? And she said, she's just so brilliant. She said, you know, I've been thinking about you and I've been thinking about your options and you could try to drink in moderation, but what would be the point? And that, again, just stopped me dead in my tracks where I was like, oh, my God, why am I working so hard to use willpower 
to hold on to something like this when I'm sacrificing my life, my kids, my job, my marriage. And that was it. In that moment, I was done. And I realized I am addicted. And the only way out is to surrender. 100%, you know, and it's back to what you shared about your pregnancy as well. You know, when you do enter this arena of negotiating with moderation, then it tends up being very consuming. And it is the case for many of us that I've talked to. So it is that word that none of us really like, you know, that surrender piece and just you're like, just put your hands up and give it up. It's going to be obviously harder, but so much easier at the same time than having this constant like inner battle. And this like, you can feel the layer of resistance, or at least for me, when I quote unquote, have attempted to moderate. It's like, I can feel this like barrier of a push pull. And it's, it's really taking away from so many other things that we could be doing. And Amanda, you said that you discussed with your husband, you know, we started seeing it, what options would work for me. What ended up being some of those things that you started doing maybe on month one, month two, just early, early sobriety that got you through some reps? Because like you said, the addiction is kind of crazy. And the, you know, sometimes we have these moments of clarity, then you share it and you're like, shoot, why did I share that? Now it's like, I really, I can't backtrack. And that's, I feel like a lot of us at the beginning, how was it for you in those early stages and that commitment to stacking days when it seems to be the hardest? Yeah. So it's interesting because Unlike it had been in the past, this moment of waving that white flag was so freeing. I mean, I was sick. I was keeping secrets. I felt like nobody really knew me. And now suddenly I could just drop all of that. It was like taking off, you know, a huge weight that I'd been carrying around. And so I I never interestingly enough, regretted my decision to come clean. There were times in the past that I had kind of hinted at my husband that I had a problem and and then I would regret, you know, oh, why did I tell him that? But this time was different. It was very different. And I did start out going to AA and I did AA for the first two years of sobriety and I got a lot out of it, a whole lot. But, you know, about seven months in, I just felt like I'm not making the connections in AA that I had hoped to. And I, it's nobody's fault. But I stumbled across Recovery Elevator and then joined Cafe RE. And once I joined Cafe RE, I was introduced to this just like amazing, loving, compassionate community. And that really created the resources that I access now that really help me in recovery. I mean, I, I'm on the Facebook page quite a lot. I attend the community chats when I can, I even host one here and there, but I am in contact with sober people or people in recovery every day. And, you know, so it was, it was, it wasn't something I was ever going to turn back on once I started but finding my community, I had some rocky moments there in the beginning. And so I'm very grateful that I stayed sober through that. And then that I found my community and my people. And there's just so many different resources out there and different things fit for different people. Yeah. You know, I want to go back to something that you shared at the beginning of the interview to where, you know, you said that you, when you stopped being an athlete, you then, um, 
started hanging out with an older crowd and really understanding what it feels to have that sense of belonging, how have you been able to recreate that feeling for yourself now in sobriety? I know from what I hear, our community has helped, you know, how does that belonging feel like now for you? Yeah, I think it's so interesting with when you find your recovery people, I feel very much like I belong. And, you know, you're not necessarily going to find that in every community. Like I said, I think different things fit for different people, kind of like being a therapist, you know, sometimes it's a good match and sometimes you have to try to find someone else. But I think about when I meet up with someone from Cafe RE, I, you know, I might, for example, when I moved to Florida, I'm um, connected with someone because I had just moved here. We went on a hike and it felt like I had known this person for a long time. I mean, we'd never even spoken over the phone or met in person. And it just seems like we have this thing in common. We share the same struggle and our souls almost like connect on some strange level and we just get each other and we both feel accepted. And I, you know, I've experienced that with many, many people in the recovery community and that belonging that I did truly feel back in high school. And there were, you know, not all of that was bad. I have that same experience in the recovery community. And I've had that experience, you know, with other sets of friends in my life, but I think it oftentimes goes back to feeling like I feel seen, heard, and understood and accepted for all my parts, (laughs) all of my parts, the good, the bad, the ugly. You know, I find that the longer you are in recovery and in sobriety, you not only start fighting for yourself, you start fighting for your friendships and these people that you find because it's truly such a unique type of bond and relationship. I'm most definitely very grateful for the friends that I've met through recovery. And I have some beautiful and amazing friends outside of recovery as well. But the the truth is it is just a little bit different and it's it's wonderful. So I'm just really glad that you have been able to find that for yourself, you know, in terms of your day to day, because we don't live on these own online communities, we we have life outside of these screens. How did you have to change or tweak or navigate just your day to day, just rituals or habits? If you had like a happy hour time or a time of night where you would always drink, how was that adjustment for you? Yeah. And it it was a little bit hard in the beginning. And I think some of that is just about letting your brain kind of recalibrate and readjust because you have to have exposure to activities that you did before that where you're not drinking. I mean, even just playing with my kids or doing household chores or, you know, just mundane things around the house. It just took doing it even when I felt kind of like, oh, it would be nice to be drinking while I do this. And certainly early on, I learned the strategy of playing the tape forward, which was a phenomenal and still is a phenomenal strategy for me because it rewires your brain before we had this romanticized association with drinking. And every time we play this tape forward, we're creating a new association in our brains between drinking or substance use and how we feel. And so that was helpful, but it's also interesting that like not too far into recovery, maybe a month or so, my husband had to go on his first trip 
And so it was the first time I was going to do sober life, you know, not, not necessarily the first time I was sober when he was gone, but really committed sober life without him there. And one of my best friends texted me and she said, so how's it going? Like, I know this is the first time you're doing this sober without your husband home. And it stopped me and made me think. And I was like, you know what? Uh, this is easier. Like doing a weekend where I have to do swim lessons and laundry and playing and entertaining and this and that and the other. Wow. It's actually a lot easier because I'm not exhausted all the time Mm -hmm. or hung over or just like weighed down with guilt. And so, you know, it took a few weeks to get there and for some people it could take a lot longer, but no matter how long it would have taken, that was worth it. That freedom of, oh, I don't really mind taking these wet towels and putting them in the dryer and (laughs) bathing my kids. Like this actually feels like before I was doing it while I was holding like a hundred pound weight. And now I'm doing it without that weight. Well, gosh, that's, that's a whole lot easier to get through. I love that reflection because it's basically a contradiction. We think that we need to drink to get through it, but when we don't drink, we get through it so much easier. So it's this like weird contradiction because I think it just goes back to that um, immediate sense of relief when you do drink. But then, like you said, what happens after? Then then I'm hungover. Then I'm tired. Then everything seems like a massive task. I just want to lay on the couch and watch TV with the kids or whatever it may be. But yeah. it's this idea of, you know, I have to have the drink to even get the ball rolling. But it's it, it becomes such a much faster rolling ball when you don't have that drink. Yes, exactly. exactly. What else, Amanda, you know, what else, what were you noticing that was improving as you were stacking days other than just being able to navigate life better? Yeah. What else did you notice that you were like, Oh, interesting. My energy level shot up. I just couldn't believe, you know, sleep improved. I felt like I had more energy consistently, my relationship with my husband improved. We weren't fighting and bickering Mm -hmm. because, you know, it's a family disease. He knew I had a problem and there was some enabling, but there was also just, it's tough because he would say, gosh, you were really good at talking. And so I just couldn't, (laughs) I didn't have a fighting chance. And truly I was just like gaslighting myself and gaslighting him all the time to justify drinking And without drinking being on the table, now our relationship improves so much. And it's this interesting experience you have when you're raising young kids and you get sober where all of a sudden your time together feels really wholesome. And I I don't know a better word to describe, although it doesn't really like do it justice, but this cool experience of just feeling like, oh, wow, I feel good about how I spent that time. Don't get me wrong. Kids are hard. It's not always easy, but you don't have to walk away going, wait, what did we do yesterday? I don't remember. Or, oh my gosh, I'm such a loser. I, you know, I'm feeling so hungover when I should be enjoying time with my kids. So lots of different things that improved overall in my life. Yes. A hundred percent. And like now it's been three years to the day. So you have a whole bunch of tools, you have a community, but do you still get cravings? And if you do, how do you handle them? Yeah, absolutely. I would say not nearly as often as I did in early sobriety, but I do. And actually um, we were visiting 
my husband's family over Christmas and it was an amazing trip. We had such a great time, but there was a lot of alcohol and a lot of drinking and it was a little triggering. And I, you know, one of the strategies I've learned to use that I find so effective is looking at that craving as coming from that sort of like substance use part in my brain, that voice that's pushing the craving button. And when I hear that voice, I think of it as a part of me. And I'm of the mindset that like, we have no bad parts. There are no bad parts, only parts that are probably trying to protect us, usually from like emotional or psychological pain or parts that have been wounded. And I think in the recovery community, we hear a lot about like name that part in your head. And I think that is such an effective strategy because it's just a part of us. It's not all of us. And and I also hear people talk about, you know, fight with that substance use voice or, you know, suppress that drinking voice in your head or don't listen to it. And if that works, I mean, by all means, do what works. But I think it's really helpful to remember there are no bad parts. And I tend to turn towards that craving or that voice with sort of non-judgmental curiosity because I know it's trying to protect me. And when we turn towards it and see it as a part of us, oftentimes it kind of calms down and relaxes because it feels like seen, heard, and understood. And then once I can kind of like get an idea of what it's trying to protect me from, then I generally talk to that part of me like I would talk to a friend in recovery, like, you know, in a loving, compassionate way, an understanding way. So like, yeah, of course, it makes sense that you feel this way. Makes sense that you're feeling triggered. It's understandable. This is something that's worked for you in the past. And we don't do that anymore. And like, let's play the tape forward and remember why we don't do that anymore. And that is such an effective strategy for me. And I know, you know, I think people should do whatever works, but you know, then as a therapist, I think thought suppression generally backfires. Like there's a lot of research to say it's more helpful to create some distance from your thoughts and then accept them. And I think that's exactly right, but I want to take it a step further and show some compassion to that part of myself. And then I feel like that substance use part can then sort of still do its job but use different methods because its intention was noble trying to protect me. The methods are kind of distorted. So then I, you know, look at what, what else can it do to protect me? Do I need to take a break? Do I need to like reach out to a sober friend or do I need to go to bed? Do I need to just not go to this party or event? So that's kind of a long explanation, but no, you know what? I was letting you just talk it out because basically this is in line with a lot of what I've been sharing on the show lately uh, with the ACT therapy. Yes, exactly. You know, I, for me, at least what you said about suppression or having this approach of, you know, like I'm having this thought, I just need to make it into a positive thought. And like, I feel like that was really unhelpful and I didn't really notice it until I learned this approach of just, you just have to diffuse yourself from the thought and the story that is kind of linked to that thought and, you know, gentle compassion, mindfulness. I have been in therapy for so long and I have gained so many tools from just the last couple of months as I've been exploring ACT therapy and also EMDR therapy. Just like you said, sometimes different things 
is what works. But I did notice that that suppression really wasn't allowing me to process at all. So I just, I really loved that you shared that. And, And it truly, like, you don't have to go to therapy or become an act specialist to just understand that you can create some distance from the thought instead of resisting the thought or wanting to force change the thought or shaming yourself for even having the thought, which was something that happened to me a lot. Like, why am I even having these thoughts? I shouldn't be like, I'm more, I know better, you know, then you get on this thing where you're just being hard on yourself instead of showing yourself compassion. Totally. And I, and I've heard you reference acceptance and commitment therapy, and I just think it's a great, I'm, I'm a huge advocate. And I think, again, you take it a step further, not just diffusing from the thoughts, because it's, there's a difference between looking from your thoughts and looking at your thoughts. We want to look at our thoughts. And then I think we can bring them some compassion. Like there are no bad thoughts. It's just, you know, some thoughts might get a little extreme. And I think that comes from, for a lot of us, you know, childhood wounds or different Mm harmful experiences or challenging. I mean, it could be, it could be something pretty minor. Like I got scolded by a teacher, but unfortunately we're human and we get affected by these things and we can be kind to ourselves and show compassion. And I think that's really hard for some people to do, but I think it's so important that self-compassion. 100%. And Amanda, we've reached the rapid fire round. So if you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. If you could talk to young Amanda or Amanda on day one, what would you say? Oh my gosh. If I could talk to Amanda on day one, that poor, poor girl who was in withdrawal and struggling, I would say, just wait. It is going to get so good. It is going to be amazing. What are you excited about right now? Oh, wow. I'm excited for my daughter's birthday party tomorrow. (laughs) And I'm excited just to continue a life in sobriety and recovery and keep meeting new people in that journey. What's your favorite ice cream flavor? Anything with chocolate, the more chocolate, the better. (laughs) You can never get enough chocolate in my life ever. What has recovery made possible for you? I think it's made possible that I can be the person I strive to be. Cause I think I tried to use drugs and alcohol to accomplish that and it always backfired, but I'm able to live in a way that's much more consistent with who I want to be and what matters to me. It's never going to be perfect, but it's much more possible now. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? I think I would say that sobriety offers all of the freedom that drugs and alcohol promise but fail to deliver. And I think that's probably a quote somewhere that I stole, but it is so true that freedom that you seek, even if it's just freedom from boredom or just wanting to stay feeling good, or if it's something more intense like anxiety or depression, you know, you're, you might find that temporarily in a substance, but you'll find it in a much more consistent, stable and long lasting way through sobriety. And before we depart, Amanda, can you give listeners your own? You may have to say adios to booze if line. <laughs> yeah, you may have to ditch the booze if you refill red wine bottles with water in order to hide how much you drink from your husband. 
And then you wake up the next morning and realize that you couldn't find the red food coloring. So you used green food coloring to try to change the color of water. Amanda, thank you so much for sharing your journey. I'm really happy that we got to do this and that you are helping so many people stay the course. So I just really appreciate you and thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much. I really appreciate being here. Thank you. Thanks for helping me stay sober today. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Very well, Timari. That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to just say thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you, thank you, gracias. Um, the last intro that I shared where I talked about my slip was very hard for me to not only record, but also to air. And honestly, I wasn't expecting all of the love that I received from all of you after that aired. And I don't know why I was doubting <laughs> that that would happen, because of course that would happen. We are an amazing community. And I just was very humbled by all of the messages and all of the kind words that I received from all of you via email or Instagram message. Just, I really appreciate it. And I hope you all know how much you mean to me, every one of you. I really tried to respond to all of the messages and just remind you all the time that I'm right here walking this path together. So thank you. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator. Every time we say no to booze, we say yes to ourselves. I love you guys. Get out of the story. Get out of the story and use the mind to locate the body. Move the energy inside by talking, walking, and most importantly, trusting that the body already knows how to do so. We cannot fight a drinking problem or an addiction because it's trying to tell us something and we must listen. It's nudging us in a certain direction. Listen to the heart and follow your gut intuition. This will never mislead you. thinking.